Heavenly Father, I am thankful, Lord, that we have a place to meet and we have men and women who love you and want to be here with us. And we thank you, Father, for um, grace, for the full meaning of it as we learned last week, that you don't merely offer something, but you confirm it in our hearts, that you were already at work reconciling us to you even before we knew we needed a Savior. And Father, you had to do that because in our weak condition, in our fallen state, in our nature as enemies of God, we would not have chosen the right things even if they were offered to us in that way. We would always reject you, Father, for the Bible says that we will not seek good of our own and you must overcome that will that is set against us, set against you. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us so much that not only did you send your son to die, but then you confirmed the truth of that in our hearts so that we'd be adopted into your family. We thank you, Father, that we now can call you Father and that we are a part of a family. But like every family, Father, we have our black sheep. That is to say, all of us. We have those who have fallen short of the glory of God. And and, uh, again, Father, that's all of us. We have those that embarrass the family. That is all of us. And we have those who disobey the parents. That is all of us. Father, we are that family that we always say we don't want to be. But spiritually, Father, you have redeemed us from all of those things. And now, Father, by your word, you choose to counsel us and how to serve you better. And so I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to the counseling you offer in the word today and that we would each, in our own way, make that commitment to hear and to do what we learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last two weeks, I've been addressing what Paul wrote concerning God choosing us, and I I knew it would be predestined to be controversial. But the focus on that word, predestination, I think has also caused us to step away a little bit from the larger picture of what Paul's teaching in chapter 1. Because we set out at the beginning of this chapter to explain why was Paul launching into this whole conversation of doctrine to the church at Ephesus. And so today what I'm going to do is set aside the topic of the last two weeks, because Paul sets it aside, at least for a time, so that we can go back to considering other more important or other equally important concepts that are in this chapter. So let's remember where that path was taking us, where we were going in chapter 1. Paul began explaining at the outset that God is preparing a glorious future for all believers. And he has blessed us with spiritual blessings in heavenly places, Paul said. Those blessings are far greater than anything we can obtain here on this earth, even if we were able to. And then he goes a step further in what we study, and he says, you did not even do anything to obtain them. That the Lord obtained those things for us as another function of grace, another result of grace. You didn't earn them, but neither do you secure them. You just receive them. And then I said Paul goes forward from that opening to explaining how each member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each played a unique role in securing heavenly blessings for God's children. And over the past two weeks, we've been studying what the Father did. And what we learned specifically was that the Father's role in assuring us these heavenly blessings in His Son was to put us in the will to choose us to have an inheritance, to adopt us as children, predestining us to our place in the family of God. The Father was the one who made that choice. Now, obviously, his role is highly significant because if he had not decided in our favor on these things, then nothing else in the plan can work for us. And that is, in fact, the truth for the world. If they are not in God's plan, then they are not a recipient of God's grace. So our assurance of heavenly glory and of heavenly blessings, of heavenly inheritance, began with the Father's 
choice. That's where he went up into verse 6 in chapter 1. But it didn't end there. So we're going to begin now in verse 7 looking at the sun. So today's topic, and it'll actually take us into next week as well, is how did the sun contribute to the process of ensuring, of securing for us heavenly blessings. And I'll read verses 7 through 12. It starts, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. Now, I'm not going to teach through all of this today. There's just too much here. And I do want to remind you, even as we begin, that we're still in one sentence, going all the way back to, uh, I believe it's verse 3, you're in one Greek sentence all the way through. So all the punctuation you see here has been added in English out of mercy from the translators for you and I. But because it's all one sentence, it's a continuous chain of thought, we're trying to chunk it up and understand how one thought leads to the next. So in verse 7, Paul has moved now into Christ. You notice it starts in verse 7 with in him, and him here is a reference to Christ. And you can tell that because if you glance back, up the page to the end of the previous verse, verse 6. You notice how that verse ends. In the beloved. And the beloved there is the one the father beloves, that is the son. So in English grammar, rules of English grammar, when you see a pronoun, him, to know what the antecedent is, you just go backwards until you see the next proper name or noun. In this case, that would be beloved. So in him refers to the beloved, that is Christ. So the Son is the one beloved by the Father, and therefore, in Him we have something. And of course, any discussion of Christ's work on our behalf has to begin with His work of dying on the cross in our place to cleanse us from our sins. I mean, we all should know that, right? You go there first if you're going to talk about what Christ has done for you. And that's exactly where Paul goes. He says, in Christ we have redemption through His blood. The word Paul uses in Greek here that we have translated redemption... Apolytrosis in Greek, it means something very specific. It means to buy back a slave from its master, from his master, so that then you can set that slave free. Greek has a word just for that idea. It's not just buying something or ransoming a person. It's a very specific sense. So we're talking about somebody who has been made a slave, is a slave, under the control of some other master, but someone else, a third party, shows up and pays the master for the slave, takes the slave away, and then says, now that I have you, I'm setting you free. That's what Christ did for us. We were slaves. Jesus paid a ransom. He bought us back. And then he set us free. Redemption or or ransom in this case is a very common way that the New Testament describes our salvation. Because it's actually a literal truth. It's not merely metaphor. It's metaphor only in the sense of the physical. You and I weren't physically slaves. But the scriptures rarely talk about our physical life with much concern. It's only about spiritual matters for the most part and how those spiritual matters impact our physical life. And in this case, you're talking about spiritual bondage, spiritual slavery. Hebrews comments a lot about this topic at different points in the letter. And at one point in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says this in 2.14. Therefore, since the children, referring to you and I, children of God, remember, we're adopted. Since the children share in flesh and blood... Christ himself likewise also partook of the same, 
that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So here's what Hebrews is telling us. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying every human being enters life, we're talking now from the moment you're born physically, everyone enters life as a slave to sin, and ultimately to sin's penalty, which is eternal death. Now, you didn't know that when you were two years old. In fact, a lot of adults don't know that even now, right? They're not aware of their spiritual slavery. And if they are aware of the penalty, if they're even cognizant of the fact that one day they have to die and face judgment, it's a fleeting thought. It's one they push out of their mind quickly, and they, they just hope for the best. But we're told from Scripture that we live our whole lives as unbelievers with this sentence hanging over our head. And all the while, it's there because a man who lived long ago chose to sin. Adam. Adam, the Bible says, was humanity's representative in the garden. And when he fell into sin, he cast humanity's lot in with Satan's lot. So spiritually speaking, Adam traded in innocence and freedom for slavery to an enemy. And Hebrews says that the devil, Satan, has become a master over all fallen humanity, controlling them, controlling you and I before we knew the Lord, through a fear of death. And here's what he means. I want you to imagine that you are in a gang of thieves and murderers. And you're running with this crowd. This is your lifestyle. These are the people you know. And you are guilty of many crimes. And you know that if you ever were to decide you wanted to go on the straight and narrow, you wanted to turn yourself in, go to the police, make good, and try to rescue yourself from this lifestyle that you find yourself in, you know that you would be condemned for your crimes, that you would have to hang, go to the electric chair for your crimes. And so as a result, you find no solace in that alternative and no option, no way to extricate yourself from your circumstances because there's no one waiting for you who is your friend. Your only friend is the gang leader, the one who has put you in this place by recruiting you and now causing you to have this debt before society. And, and really, since you can't go anywhere else, you just stick with what you know. But he's no friend at all. You have no friends really at all. He's only seeking to cause more death, more destruction, more chaos. And in that sense, you're just a tool in his hand. And so he controls you. He controls you through fear because you know you cannot escape your circumstances because as a criminal you have no other friend. You're stuck. You're a slave, in a sense, to a gang leader living in the fear of the law without hope of a rescue. That's my best attempt to create by analogy a comparison to what we know spiritually is true for every unbeliever. You can see evidence of this in people's lives. And I, of course, don't expect that unbelievers are consciously aware necessarily of what the enemy is doing in controlling us. Have you not watched unbelievers as they come closer to the last days of their life, when they know and you know that life's coming to its end for whatever reason, and there's a sense of desperation over that, a sense of true fear over it? Or even long before that moment arrives, you see people working really hard to pretend that it's not coming. They pretend in a lot of ways. I think one of the ways that we see most commonly in our culture today is the way we physically change ourselves, our appearance, so that we don't look like we're getting old. We pretend that if I make myself look 20 years younger, I'm not actually 20 years closer to death. And I know there's a lot of psychology behind why we do these things. I'm not saying that's the sum of it. In all cases, what the Bible is here to tell you, though, friends, is behind all of the reasons we give ourselves, the unbeliever's real reason 
is the fear, the innate, unconscious, unescapable fear that who I am will have to be rectified before a holy and just God someday, and death is that accountability moment. And that is a slavery. It causes us to do, say, and think all manner of evil things as a means of self-preservation against the guilty conscience that's always there. And then the Bible says, into those circumstances, Christ stepped in and he did apolytrosis. He paid your ransom to that enemy so that the enemy was obligated to set you free so that now as you are freed from his control, Christ says, here's your freedom from slavery in general. Paul says in verse 7 again that the price that had to be paid in order for that freedom to come your way was his blood. And that's because the crimes that you and I are guilty of, sin in any form, deserve spiritual death according to the Bible. God says, the day you eat this fruit, you shall surely die. And he wasn't talking about physical death. He was talking about spiritual death. And the definition of spiritual death in the Bible is separation from God into eternity. That's what spiritual death means. It's not ceasing to exist. It's not the end of you. It's you in a very specific state. That is eternal punishment away from God forever. Since the price had been set by God in the garden, death then Christ could not bargain that price down. He couldn't turn to the Father and say, all right, I'll set these guys free for you, Father. You chose them. I'm here to help redeem them, but I don't want to die for them. How about we just play rock, paper, scissors? There's got to be some other method I can use to get them out of slavery. And God said, no, my word has gone forth. It cannot come back to me void. It is said that the price is death. That's the price that has to be paid. So he had to spill his lifeblood in order to pay the price to redeem you from the one who had mastery over you. So that payment brought you out of slavery and it permitted the Father who has chosen you to forgive your sins justly. What if you and your gang were arrested and taken to court for judgment of your crimes? And then there's a righteous judge sitting behind the bench looking at you and knowing what you had done. That judge could not set you free, not without cause. The judge would have needed some good cause to acquit you. We already heard that the Father chose us to be adopted. As a child. But friends, you have to ask yourself, what would allow him to make that decision? Because if he had not paid the price for your sin, he couldn't adopt you justly. He would have to have overlooked your sin. That's not being just. No more than if we see a court letting a guilty man go free, like O.J. Simpson from years ago. No one thought that was just. No one felt that was right. Everyone knew that was wrong. And God doesn't make those mistakes. So he has to do it justly. The Father needed some just cause to acquit you, to justify you and I, so that he could bring you into the family of God, reconcile you to God, be at peace with you, and not have any charge against you. Paul says that Christ was the one who gave the Father just cause to forgive us of our crimes, our transgressions, and his ransom payment became the acceptable substitute for you and I. Romans 5.15, Paul says, But the free gift is not like the transgression, For if by the transgression of the one many died, well, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Paul compares Christ's act on the cross to Adam's act in the garden and he's trying to address a central question that some people might have the issue is how can one man's death pay for the price of so many he says no you have to remember how the problem started 
Through one man's sin, he says, Adam plunged the entire human race into sin and judgment. So it proves the point that through one man's act, many can be affected. Christ reversed that, Paul says. By one man's pouring out of his life as a gift, that gift of grace can abound to many as God chooses to put it to work. Because at the end of the day, it's the Father choosing to use that payment that determines whether it's effective or not and be just in doing so. Remember last week I raised at the end of the teaching what the real meaning of grace is. And I said that many in the church have come to think grace is unmerited favor from God in the form of an offer. And the way they define grace is not biblically accurate. You won't find that in the Bible. What you will find in the Bible is the definition of grace is the finished work of a God who chooses to save us. Grace is being saved, not the offer of being saved. And as you look at the text today, Paul goes a step further. Grace is not just the finished work of God who saves us while we were yet sinners. Now Paul says God's grace is evident in the fact that he puts his own son in our place on the cross. Friends, it's one thing for God's grace to choose us in granting mercy and rescue us from our predicament. That's certainly grace. But it's another thing altogether to say that in order for God to be willing to extend us that mercy, he has to put his own son on the cross. Now that's a whole other level of grace. If God, by some merciful act, could just say, yeah, let's Steve into heaven, let's just do that, that would be grace. I wouldn't deserve to be there, and he would have put me there. But he couldn't do that without killing his own son. So now Paul says grace goes a step beyond simply choosing, then he dies. But the grace of God in the Son doesn't even end there. Paul says the grace of God in the Son is lavished. I love that word. It's lavished. Abounds is a word in Greek. He lavishes it to us in yet another way. Verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Here is the second way we receive grace through the Son. His death to free us from slavery was the first and most important way. You see the Son working to give us the assurance of glory in the heavenly places. But it doesn't stop there. Number two, Christ Jesus is our source for all wisdom and insight. And as you can probably tell, he's referring here to the revealed word of God. The wisdom of God is granted to us through his word. We obtain spiritual truth through the word of God. Spiritual realities of who God is, who we are, and what the future holds. Things that I think many Christians take for granted. As if it was always going to be that way. As if it could never have been any other way. But Paul is saying this is evidence of grace all in itself. The wisdom of God through the word is knowledge that you have only if God chooses to reveal it to you. Spiritual truths lie outside the ability of human beings to discover on their own. No amount of searching, no amount of philosophizing, no amount of study or observation of the natural world could ever discover who God is, much less any understanding of how he is working in the world or what he has planned for the creation. That would remain entirely outside our knowledge. Notice in verse 9, Paul says, Christ makes known to us the mystery of his will, because God's will is a complete and utter mystery to fallen mankind. Why do you think men and women have in their natural heart the desire to make God's? Why waste time with that? When you really get down to it, if they don't know the true living God, why do they need sticks, stones, and rocks? Why do they need little altars? Why do the people burn candles to things? Why do people sacrifice their children like has been done in past and probably still is in some cases today? 
Why, why do people mess with any of that stuff? I've heard some people say, well, there's a God-shaped hole in our heart and we need to try to fill it. I get what they mean. But what Scripture says is no one seeks God. No, not one. What is it about our nature that knows that we want something more powerful than us in our world? And yet, look where we go for answers into things we make and we prescribe. Paul says here that there's a mystery associated with knowing the will of God or anything to do with God and that you will not solve that mystery unless God solves it for you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says in verse 20, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So friends, there's a fundamental principle emerging out of what he's teaching here concerning Christ and the grace we receive. And that principle is, mankind cannot find God. God must reveal himself to mankind. And unless and until he does so, by definition, humanity will remain ignorant all the way to the grave. Paul says in Romans 1 that no one will be with excuse when they stand before God because the heavens testify to him. All Paul is saying is, no one will be able to stand before a holy and just God and say, I had no idea a God existed. Paul is not saying that the heavens are sufficient. Paul's not saying in Romans 1 that just because you can see stars in the heaven, you can somehow divine the plan of God in Christ. No. What he is saying is you can't say there was no God. But apart from those basic concepts, God remains hidden from us. So only by the kind intention of God's will, which the Father purposed to achieve in Christ, can we ever hope to understand him. And that is a form of grace extended to you and I. That he gives us his word, in other words. That he gives us a way to know him in a true way. Jesus started the process. Obviously, he taught the disciples. But even before that, Christ was speaking to us through the prophets given to Israel. He is the word, as John calls him. He is given to us so that we would understand the Father. Notice also, this understanding is only for the believer, as a matter of God's grace. Those who aren't chosen by the Father to receive grace do not receive the wisdom God gives us in the Word either. In fact, the ability to understand and appreciate the Word of God is itself a sign that someone is truly a believer. I'm not saying it's a perfect measure, but it's been my experience that those who have no interest in the Word of God, no love for it, no desire to study it, and more than that, no ability to grasp it, is often a good indicator, if not perfect, of who truly knows him and who doesn't. Of who's playing Christianity and who's been born again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 again, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Those who think themselves wise in human sense will be shown to be fools later, that is in eternity, as it's discovered that what they thought they knew so much about, they had no clue about. Meanwhile, those of us who are foolish, that is to say, those of us by the Spirit of God in us, have come to realize we do know nothing and come to the Word of God in a hopeful and expectant way. God is delighted to show himself to us through what he's revealed because it reflects glory on him when he does it. The Word of God is utter foolishness to the unbeliever. That's why, friends, it is literally impossible for an unbeliever to grasp what the Bible says in spiritual terms. Now, let's be honest. Unbelievers can pick the book up and read it. It's in English. If you know English, you'll read it. That's not hard. 
And they can make some sense of it, at least to a degree. They can understand, for example, the story of Noah. They can understand the story of Abraham's life. Or they can even understand what Jesus said when he walked the earth, at least to a degree, in a human sense. In the same way they can read Moby Dick or Tom Sawyer. They can get a sense of what it's saying. That's not what Paul is saying. The spiritual meaning of the text, though, lies beyond their grasp. They don't understand why Noah existed. They don't understand why we had a flood. They don't understand the significance of the promises given to Abraham. They can't trace that through and understand how it gets us to Christ. They don't understand the big picture. Those things just go over their head. And if you think, well, it can't be that hard. I can just explain it to them. Give it a try. I mean that sincerely. That's evangelism. Give it a try. And what you will find is there are those, they get it. You can see they're on a path toward salvation. Or maybe they're right then and there going to receive Christ. They're already there. And then there are those who don't get it, don't care, don't want to hear it, and aren't interested. And no matter how hard you try, it's like banging your head against a wall. The wall of their heart. And I'm not saying that determines in that one moment whether they're going to heaven or not. We all understand God works in timings of his own. You could just be there on the wrong day. It could be tomorrow. You may just be planting a seed, as Paul says, and someone else will water it. This isn't about making decisions for them from our point of view about where they are going. That's not our role. All I'm talking about now is the spiritual truth that understanding Scripture is a God-permitted ability and it is something reserved for those who know him. They can't see it because he's not revealed it. When he reveals it, they can't miss it. That's the power of God. I grew up, as you all know, Catholic. And in my case, what I'm saying when I say that is I grew up without faith. I was not a Christian. I was in a family that was Catholic by tradition. And we went through the Catholic traditions of Mass. And you know, I hated every minute of it. But I went. When you're seven, you go where your mom tells you to go. There was a point, though, in my younger years, I don't remember how old I was at the time, my mom and dad decided I was watching too much TV. This is pre-internet, for those of you who are younger. Yes, there was a day before we had the internet. Life was actually still worth living, even under those circumstances. Pre-iPhone. But cable had just been invented. I remember the day we got cable installed in my house. It was like the world entered into my house, right? And so... My mom and dad decided at one point that I was spending too much time on the couch. I'd get home from school, lay down on the couch, watch TV until bedtime, and they're like, oh, no, you're not going to live like that in my house. So a new rule, no TV on at all, Monday through Thursdays, and only on Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night could we watch anything. And I grew up in the 70s and early 80s, and so I missed all the good TV shows from the 70s and 80s, all those TV shows that people talk about I, I never saw, which was probably to my benefit. But where I'm going with this, you'll do anything to entertain yourself when you can't watch TV. And I remember sitting in my living room one night and just laying there on the couch with no TV on. You know, I was going to show my parents. And, and my eye caught the Bible up on the shelf. I didn't even know we had one. I don't think my parents knew we did. And I thought, well, I'll just read the Bible. That sounds interesting. I never thought about doing that before. So I pulled the Bible down. I'm an unbeliever, right? And I'm a kid, but I'm old enough I can read stuff, you know, this isn't calculus, right? I could read it. And so I'm reading it, and I just remember this feeling like, Nothing makes any sense. It was just this weird feeling like, how can I read this and get nothing out of it? It makes no sense at all. It's just words. And it didn't take me long to say, you know what? I'll just wait for Friday TV. I mean, there was no reason to open the book anymore. You know, I don't know why that stuck in my mind. I've never forgotten that moment because there was something weird about it. How can it be I can read words and nothing makes any sense to me when I know they're in my language? And in the case of the Bible, there was a spiritual barrier to understanding what I was reading And obviously God's plan in my life was that I'd come to know him one day. 
So how do I explain that he wasn't ready to let me know it then? Well, it wasn't in the timing God had for me that I would come to know him in that moment. All of this is simply to say that the spiritual knowledge we all take for granted, whatever we know of God, however much each of us know, that knowledge came to you by God's grace. He chose to let you know it. And he's not stopped. I'm not saying you've reached the limit, I hope. But it's not a given. I mean, theoretically, you could imagine a church in which God gave you the grace of Christ on the cross, which is sufficient to pay your price, and then left you there in ignorance until the day he took you home. And then just kind of gave you all the knowledge once you got home. God did so good, he didn't want you to come in ignorant. He wanted you to have hopeful expectations. He wanted you to have a concern over your godliness even before you reach glorification. He wanted you to understand who he is and what he did so that you can thank him for it even now. Remember in the Gospels in John chapter 5, Jesus was trying to say basically the same thing I'm saying to a group of Pharisees. He's been talking to these guys and they aren't getting it. And he finally says this to them in John 5.38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You see what he's saying to them? You're busy searching the Bible, the scriptures, the Old Testament for them, to find the secrets for eternal life, and yet they've been talking about me the whole time, and yet here I am standing in front of you, but you don't receive me. Why? Because you don't have the love of God in you. Do you see the precedent there? Until God has, by His grace, put in you the capacity to understand, you can't receive it. If Christ were standing in front of us physically right now on this earth, the same principle would still apply. That is to say, an unbeliever could not receive His words. Only those who are being saved by God's grace can recognize the Word of God as the power of God in their lives. And we hear it because the Son has given us the grace to do it. Later in John 10, Jesus said this to also another group of unbelievers, 1024. The Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's the most ridiculous statement in all the Gospels. Now this is chapter 10 of John. How much stuff has he been doing? How long are you going to keep playing games with us? And Jesus is like, duh, how many more times do I have to heal somebody? How many more times do I have to tell you I'm the word of God? How many times do you have to see things fulfilled in front of you? You're not getting it. And so then he says this. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify to me. But you do not believe, now notice what he says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You don't become his sheep by believing him. He says, you're able to believe him because you are his sheep. That is to say, because the Father chose you and made you so. Then you come to understand him. So understanding the word of God, friends, is something I want all of us to treasure. It is the unique privilege of God's sheep. Which makes it all the more surprising that so few believers take advantage of that grace made available in Christ. So few believers today, and over the centuries probably, have turned to the scriptures in a meaningful and consistent way. Consider that these words you have in the Bible that you hold in your lap in front of you or on your screen, however you do it, are a manifestation of the unmerited favor of a holy God to his children. And in light of that, friends, how much attention do they deserve? How much priority should these things have? Peter says in 2 Peter 1, Verses 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power 
Notice this. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Peter says everything that pertains to life on earth and to our godliness is found in the true knowledge of him who called you. That is to say through the word. Now certainly, friends, there are other sources of human knowledge. We all know that. History, science, mathematics, and all the rest. I'm not saying that the only source of knowledge that you need in life is in this book, and neither is Scripture. What Peter is saying is spiritual truths of life. All of that knowledge is right here and nowhere else. For the believer, the Word of God is sufficient to bring you where God wants you to be in your life. And yet, a lot of Christians aren't placing that priority in their own life. The pursuit of this is a marginal part of their life. And whenever I bring this topic up in my own home church, I feel very much like I'm preaching to the choir because, I mean, you're here regularly, so you know that's what's coming. So you're clearly not someone who's opposed to hearing the Word of God. I get it. And although we can all do better, you're probably not the worst case. You can feel better in that respect, I guess. By the way, I have a gift of encouragement. You can just you can see it flowing out of me, right? But even those of us who do give time sporadically to the Bible, whether here or on our own, we only do it when it's convenient. My wife tells a story about how she used to try to get Bible study done at the end of a day after she did all her work, and she always ran out of time. And then at one point she felt convicted to reverse that. Did her Bible study first thing in the day, and all of a sudden not only did she get all of the things done, but she'd end up with time left over at the end of the day. And it was like the list didn't change, just somehow the order of them made a big difference. It's God responding to our faithfulness. So I'm a firm believer that you cannot spend too much time in the Word of God. If you doubt me, take up a challenge in this area of your life. God has extended His grace to you in the form of a book full of information that will make your life different than you might know it to be yet. And as much as you value His grace in having chosen you, and as much as you appreciate His grace in having died for you, put as much emphasis on appreciating the grace that He showed you by giving you His Word. Because you know that if you learn this, it brings its own rewards. And then to finish today, secondly, Paul says, we have the grace of all insight from Christ. Fundamentally different than the grace of wisdom. Insight refers to our appreciation of God's will for our specific life. It refers to knowing that Christ is calling us to do something or how he wants us to live to please him. Insight builds on wisdom, of course, but it's unique. It's different than wisdom. As you come to understand spiritual truths, because you dedicate yourself to learning them, You're going to be in a better position to understand God's will for your life. And so when he asks you, for example, to sacrifice some hobby, some pleasure, some distraction in your life, because he wants to use that time differently, not only will you hear him, but you'll understand why that's an important thing to do. You'll understand why it's good. Or when he calls you to endure some persecution or trial, you'll understand from the word of God why you're supposed to persevere. And if you don't understand the scriptures, you can still hear from the Lord. I'm not saying insight depends on wisdom they're independent but without the counsel of his word friends you may hear and you may not understand or you may hear and you may not feel compelled to obey and just like spiritual wisdom this is a foreign notion to the unbeliever insight is this idea that god can tell you what to do unbelievers don't get that have you ever told someone you knew who was an unbeliever that the lord's telling me or leading me to do such and such have you ever had a conversation like that in front of an unbeliever and what is the reaction Don't they give you the RCA Victor dog look? Right? You know what I'm talking about? All of you over the age of 50, raise your hand, right? I mean, I don't know if they give you the full head turn or they just kind of do it with their eye, like, you know, like this. But don't you get that reaction sometimes if you've ever vocalized 
well, I was going to go do this, but you know, I felt the Lord leading me, I should do this other thing. And, you know, people sometimes will say, what's that again? You said, what? Who's leading you? How? Did you hear from God? Well, I didn't hear from them. Well, what do you mean you, he's leading you? You know, they're, they're either curious, they think you're weird, or they just let it go because they really don't want to know what you're talking about. If you haven't had that moment, maybe some of you have never expressed that to someone because you're not sure how it's going to go over. Give it a try. I have found that to be one of the most effective entry points for a conversation about God. Simply acknowledging how he's ruling your life. Say something to them and find out what they say in response to that. That is something that gives you an opportunity to speak to Christ living in your life. This is another example of how the Lord distinguishes his children by his grace in the fallen world. He speaks to us and he doesn't speak to them. You know, the world has romanticized the term a child of God. To the unbeliever, everyone is a child of God in the sense only that we all descended from God's creation. But that's not how the Bible uses the term. The Bible doesn't use the term child of God as everyone who's alive. It uses the term only to refer to those who are in the family of God by faith. So as a believer, you're a child of God. Who are you a child of according to Scripture if you're not a believer? Satan. And Jesus specifically uses that term when he talks to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, he calls them. So, those who are not of Christ cannot hear his voice. Listen to what Christ says in John 10 again, on that same topic of shepherding sheep. He says this, in John 10, 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's insight. That's what Paul means when he says, All spiritual wisdom and all insight. It's this outpouring of God's grace that when Christ goes, Steve, stop being lazy, get back to study, I sense that and I want to do something with that. In verses 8 and 9, Paul then adds that having wisdom and insight are evidence that the Lord has lavished even more grace upon us. These things didn't have to be part of God's plan and therefore it's easy to take them for granted, but he loved us enough to extend them. In 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. So there's a degree of knowledge available now, to the extent we take advantage of it. There's a degree of insight that Christ extends to us by His grace, to the extent we listen. And in a day to come, we'll know it all. I guess the question is, are we taking full advantage of the grace He's offered us now? God's grace is greater than that. It overflows, it abounds, it lavishes us so that it will produce godliness in us. And then the last thought, Paul says in verse 10, the language here is very confusing, so we're going to work with the words here a little bit to make it make sense to us. He says in verse 10 that this grace coming from Christ, of wisdom, of insight, is intended to be an administration suitable until the fullness of the times. The Greek word translated administration just means under management. That is to say, the grace of God in His Word... And in his revelation to us, in our heart, those are tools that he has appointed to managing us. To managing us in this time we live on earth. So that for as long as we live in these fallen earthly bodies and await the riches of our inheritance in heavenly places, we live under God's management through his word and through his insight. And then Paul adds, this administration, this management will continue until the fullness, or we could say the fulfillment of these times, or this age, is finished. What he's saying is this. God's grace went that next step of ensuring that we could be managed in the time that he left us here 
until the fullness, until the completion of this age, till the time we go to be with Him, and as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, until we know Him fully, until we have all of what we need, till we are sinless because we've been glorified. But He loves us so much, He says, I've saved you from that sin, but I don't want you to be a victim of it in the meantime. So Paul says, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you insight. That's grace upon grace. And I'm going to keep managing your life for the better until you reach the point where you don't need that management anymore because you'll be like me. So today, friends, we've studied two ways in which Christ participates in the Godhead to extend grace to the believer. His death paid a ransom to free you from your slavery to sin, and he granted you forgiveness of your sins. And his word gives you a knowledge of who he is. Who is this one who saved me? And then his grace upon that allows you to walk in his will so that he can steer you out of sin and out of its consequences, managing you down to the last day so that when you arrive, you'll have lived a life that pleases him. Now, there are still yet two more ways that Paul describes Christ having poured out his grace, and we'll get those next week. And then after that, we'll go into the grace of the Holy Spirit and his role in bringing all of this into reality for us. Grace upon grace. One Bible scholar took time to count the many ways in which the Lord bestows his grace upon his children, and he stopped counting at 33. And it's grace to you and I that I do not intend to go through all 33. Because it's a lot, right? But I have a suspicion that that count's not accurate. That it's not complete, in other words. That it wouldn't surprise me if the actual count is infinite. And we've only begun to scratch the surface. Are you taking advantage of all the grace God has extended to you? I mean, first and foremost, if you don't know the Lord, well, none of the other graces even can show up. Right? That's the first question. The grace of his death on the cross. That's the first question. Have you taken that? And if you've taken that, then the next question is, have you received the word of God as, a, as an instrument in your life of grace? Do you read it daily? Do you study it regularly? Do you meditate on it earnestly? Do you obey it faithfully? And do you consult his will prayerfully? Do you seek his counsel? Friends, do we even slow down long enough to ask him to direct our steps? Well, let's make our goal soaking in all the grace that God is making available to the church in the ways we've studied and in the ways we're still to study in the weeks to come. Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace again in your son and in his death and in his word and in his counsel. Father, I cannot confess the sins of those who are with me. Their sins are their own and they will confess in their hearts as you lead them. But I do confess my own, Father, that I have been quick to move without your counsel. I have been quick to teach without the study that's required. And I have been quick, Father, to overlook the grace you offer me in the daily way that you live in within me. And I pray, Father, that, that as I rest more on your grace and as it reflects more in my teaching, that you will use it in mighty ways to speak to more people about who you are. Lord, thank you for our church, for family, and for those here, Lord, who gather regularly. Let us each show grace to one another as we learn it from you. So that as a community, we're more effective in evangelizing and witnessing and in speaking truth to others, Father. Use us mightily for that purpose. And if it be your will, Father, collect a few more here so that we may study and learn from them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.